I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I ended up getting uh, put away. I got locked up in a psych ward in Sydney for, for three weeks, three and a half weeks. That was an eye opener. And, uh, what do you remember from that? Yeah, it, it was. What struck me was how normal a lot of people were. Today, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Alan Bruce. It's not often that you get to hear about the experiences of first responders and a quick warning that this conversation explores pretty graphic details of death as well as suicide. Please look to the show notes for resources or skip this episode if you find this content distressing. Alan Bruce worked as a special rescue firefighter, one of the most high-stress roles in the industry, coordinating large-scale rescues and firefighting operations for over 20 years. As a child, his family immigrated to Australia from Scotland, where they were placed in a migrant hostel before finding housing in one of Sydney's toughest neighbourhoods. And fun fact, Alan actually went to school with Ivan Malat. Alan developed a love for music and adrenaline-filled activities in his teen years, which eventually led him to the New South Wales Fire Brigade. Alan developed quite severe PTSD later in his career. He was medically retired in 2015. Today, we chat about mental health, the concept of life and death, and the mental well-being toll on our first responders. These insights are valuable to anyone working in an emergency or health-related field, but for those of us who aren't on the ground, you'll find this conversation as shocking as it is inspiring. Here's my chat with Alan Bruce. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. You've got a pretty cool, crazy and big story. And I think it would be hard to kind of condense it all into an hour. But I am keen to talk about your book and your career and kind of your mental health journey as well, because Mm. I find it very inspiring. So thanks for being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. Let's start with chronologically. It's best way to go, I think. Tell me about you grew up in Scotland Mm -hmm. and you came out as a migrant. How old were you? Yeah, well, we were one of the, the classic 10-pound tourists or 10-pound poms, although I was Scottish. Born in Scotland, a little village called Lethem, which was, uh, for most people wouldn't know where that is, but it's outside of Dundee, which was a, a major city. I don't know why my parents decided to come to Australia. They always said that it was uh, to give us kids a better life, but whether that's true or not, or they just loved the, the sense of adventure. So it was 1962 we left Scotland. I was four years old on a big ship called the Castle Felici. We sailed six weeks through the Suez Canal all the way out to uh, Australia, stopped in first place was Perth for a day or so and then around to Sydney. And that was like the start of my uh, Australian life. I'd only had four years in Scotland, mm. but, but some of my memories are mainly of snow and being cold. I was going to say, <laughs> do you remember much about Scotland because you're so young? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a few things and a lot of things. And I think I've spoken to other migrants. Uh, what happens is that because it is such a big change in your life, your parents tend to talk about it a lot and it stays with you. So mm. I do remember a lot, 
or it was forced on me because of the conversations around the table over the years. But I remember being dragged down to the local shopping centre on a sled because you couldn't get a pram down there mm. and that sort of thing. But for the most part, most of my memories start when we arrived at Australia on East Hills Hostel. So, so what are some of those earliest memories in Australia? Yeah, it was the first thing was we arrived at the docks and there's actually a series on now called, uh, mm. uh, I think it's called 10 Pound Poms or have something. A look. Yeah, and, and we arrived at the docks and then we're put on a bus and taken out to East Hills Hostel. Now, I don't know if your listener viewers know where that is, but it was, at the time it was in the middle of the bush, west of uh, Liverpool, southwest Sydney, in the middle of nowhere. And these were tin huts, Nissan huts that are built for the army in World War II. And there were just tiny little huts and we shared it with another family, each individual hut. Wow. And I remember we arrived at the hostel and been excited kids that some man made a speech about what to look out for. And that was redback spiders, <laughs> brown snakes, red belly blacks. And my mum, the, the look of horror on her face, I thought, what have you got us into? <laughs> but as it turned out we had a ball on the hostel. There was kids everywhere. There's lots of work for the parents. Even though East Hills at the time, that was the end of the line, metaphorically and physically because the train stopped at East Hills. So we had to walk up to the station through the bush, get on the train, and mum and dad had to go to work. And they had plenty of work, but it was difficult, difficult times. And we were just looked after by whoever could look after us on the hostel. Was that sort of like a temporary <coughs> measure to place you there as a migrant family whilst they found housing for you? Is that yeah, why it was there? That was that was the plan. And that was the, I guess, the carrot mm-hmm. that, that got people out from Scotland because Australia needed workers. So we came out and some people lasted two, three weeks, mm-hmm. a few months. We were there for three years. Wow. I think my parents liked it. So we're on the hostel and it was great fun for young kids. And don't get me wrong, but very hot. You know, there's no air conditioning. And imagine Australian summer and we were Scottish kids, pale as. I remember sunburn and getting <laughs> peeling, mum peeling skin off me at night mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So uh, we survived that and then we went on a bit of a rental circle for a while there until we got established. When you think about your childhood, what is the first sort of emotion, I guess, that you feel? It's funny. I don't have too many emotional hangovers from the hostel. Mm. It all happened a little bit later when I I got a bit older and we went to a few different schools. I remember feeling a bit lonely when we went. When we left the hostel, we went to a place called Moorbank, which was a few kilometres away. And luckily I could stay at the same school because just from a different angle. We moved next door to the notorious Millat family. That was actually on my list. I was going to ask you, and, did you really go to school with Ivan Millat? Yeah, well, I believe Ivan had left, but in my class was George or Richie. There was two, and then Richie or George was in my sister's class. I get them mixed up. But even back then, you knew that the families are struggling. They're yeah. a bit different. But I didn't know. We were only there for just under a year, and then we moved on. But, yeah, they were they lived next door. So we didn't know anything about them until, you know, 20, 30 years later. But uh, I've got school photos with me next to one of the (laughs) Malats. So tell me about school. Was it something that you enjoyed or you mentioned feeling a little bit lonely? Yeah, it was – the early years was okay Mm -hmm. because I was in in lots of other hostel kids and there was army kids at at Hammondville Primary School. But then we moved to Greenacre after that, another suburb near Bankstown. That was my first new school and that's when I felt a bit lonely because I'd Mm -hmm. I'd made friends at the other school. But like other kids, you sort of get through it. We stayed in Greenacre for about three or four years and I got to know some really good friends there. Then all of a sudden mum and dad had put their name down for a housing commission house and for some reason they never ever thought about buying a house. It just wasn't what they used to, what they were brought up. We had friends and cousins and people who were buying houses mm. but mum and dad never thought about it. They lived in a council house in Scotland and they 
moved to a council house in Australia. And that's what kind of got me when they said, well, we're moving to Australia for a better life. But I thought, in hindsight now, I thought, well, you just kind of lived the same life yeah. you would have done mm. if you stayed in a council flat in Scotland. But anyway, so uh, to answer your question, we moved to uh, Greenacre. I stayed there for four or five years, made some really good friends. And then the the letter came through that we'd received our first housing commission house and it was at Green Valley. So we'd moved from Green Acre to Green Valley. And at the time, Green Valley had this terrible reputation. And my mum, was, you know, she went white again, that we were going to move right. to this place. And uh, it was nicknamed Dodge City there <laughs> for you know, obvious reasons. So that's when I kind of felt really lonely. We moved and, and it was first year high school, so it was End of first term. I didn't do first term at the new school at Miller. Miller was the suburb within Green Valley. I did first term there and felt, I remember feeling extremely lonely and mm. it was winter and sport was a big thing in my life. I played soccer and all that sort of stuff. And I remember on a sport day, I was sent to do what they called house sport and that was the kids who didn't know anything about sport. They were useless or whatever. And I got sent to this paddock and it was a paddock out the back of the school in a gully and it wasn't a soccer field or anything like that. And we just played games like tunnel ball and catchings and, yeah. and all the all the other kids were playing soccer and had uniforms and, you know, I was with all the Italian kids because Miller High was the end of the civilization basically and yeah. out further from that was uh, Bush. So all the Italian kids were bust in. They all owned, their parents owned farms. They were all bust in and I was sort of lumped with them. And for that first year, it was horrible. I was so mm. lonely and I was, you know, I remember feeling depressed and I didn't know what depression was, but I, I just felt horrible. But then as time went on, I made new friends, joined sporting teams and things kicked on from there. At what point <clears throat> in your high school journey or perhaps after, at what point did becoming a firefighter, was that an, a goal, a vision, or was that kind of something that you just thought was a, a good choice for you at the time? Yeah, it, it didn't happen until I'd left school and, and much later in life. I was 33 when I joined the fire brigade and that was late in those days because mm. there was a cutoff point that 34 was the, the cutoff point. Wow. Joined, so I just made it. But I thought about it for probably 10, 15 years before then because I had a friend who was in, he kept trying to say, look, uh, why don't you join the fire brigade? You're really suited to it, et cetera. Because after I left school, I started, discovered music and, yeah. I, and I started playing in bands and that sort of thing. And uh, I didn't want to cut my hair. <laughs> I, had <long laughs> hair. I, I had long hair. I'm not cutting my hair to join yep. the fire brigade. Nerdy. So we... I, I kept it on the back burner until I eventually joined, you know, yep. a, a lot later in life. I was married with kids by then. You know. So between the years of finishing high school and you're not, you don't join the firefighters till 33, what were you doing other than being in a band? You, I know you had kids, but mm. looking back on that time, what was that sort of decade like for you? Once again, I went, I left school in, in year 10 or fourth form, we called it back then, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went straight back to school just because all my mates were and I did my HSC and then got bad results. And I ended up getting an apprenticeship, which something I could have done when I left year 10, in a factory in at Bankstown called Hawker de Havilland, which was an aircraft factory at Bankstown Airport there. They did aircraft maintenance, built parts for aircraft. And I actually enjoyed it. It was quite a good mm. job. And then I kicked on from there and got into the metallurgy laboratory. I went to uh, TAFE at night and did metallurgy and, and I worked in the lab for many years. But eventually I just got bored. With it. And, and mm. as I was doing that, I was playing in bands at night. So it became really, really difficult. And then the opportunity to join the fire brigade came. So I thought, that's it. That's, that's for me. Is there some part of your story I think I recall from your book, uh, Aviation? Was that, a, yeah, was that an option? Yeah, that happened uh, I, my last year at Hawker de Havilland. I, I loved 
aircraft and I'm, I'm an aerosexual. It's a new word. You know, I was one of those guys that go to airports and look at planes. Yeah, and yeah, go, yeah. What are you doing, you idiot? But, oh, that's a Cessna. And uh, so anyway, I, I thought, all right, I'm going to try and become, mm-hmm. I'm going to join the fire brigade. And I know they had lots of days off because in those that time you had worked two days, two days, two nights, and then you had four days off. Most fireys had second jobs. So I had this plan. I was going to be a, a flying instructor. Mm-hmm. thought, right, I'll get my license. I know it's expensive, but I worked it out with overtime and everything at work, how I could manage it because paying off a mortgage and all that sort of stuff. And so I actually went to a, a little airport that doesn't exist anymore, uh, Hoxham Park Airport. It's now a block of units or something, mm-hmm. uh, factories. And I got my private pilot's license and, and that's which is the first stage of your pilot's license. And, and I, I don't distinctly remember my first solo because we were flying and you do thing called circuits, you do hundreds and hundreds of circuits where you just take off, climb to a thousand feet around the airport and then land again. Mm-hmm. And without stopping, you just keep going. And wow. And just do that forever because it gives you practice in taking off, landing, mm-hmm. ascending, descending, left-hand turns, etc. And then one day I was probably been flying for 16, 18 hours. That's how much I had in my logbook. And we're taxiing down the runway and the instructor said, Al, just stop. I said, what? what's happened? So I stopped and he jumped out. Where are you going? And uh, said, oh, you can do your first solo now. And it was a nice sunny Saturday morning. And I thought, no, I was just crapping myself. <laughs> and, and before I could say anything, he shut the door. And that was it. I did my first solo. I flew an aeroplane up to 1,000 feet, turned around. And it was only, you're very busy, and there's only about five or ten seconds within the, the downwind circuit that you get for yourself because mm. you're too busy doing stuff. And I thought, I'm a thousand feet up in the air by myself. There's no one sitting next to me. It's just incredible. Anyway, I got through that circuit, taxi back in, and then from then on, you, you kind of next lesson you might be two solo circuits, and that's how they work it up. I remember driving home from that first solo, and I was punching the air, and I was so excited that I nearly ran off the road. Here I am flying an aeroplane, you know, a thousand feet, and landed safely, but I couldn't keep a car on the road. So I eventually, cut a long story short, I got my pilot's license a few months later, and that's a private license. So then you need to get a commercial and then an ins- instructor's license. I was probably $30,000 short. <laughs> and, and at that time, that was a lot of money. So I realized I'm never going to be a, a flying instructor. Mm. So I slowly stopped taking any more lessons and invested the money somewhere else like a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. But that would that have been like a dream job for you? Would have been. It would have been because I, I still wanted to join the fire brigade. Mm. Because, uh, but I thought, well, I could do a part-time instructor job. But and then the instructor jobs also led to other things, to the airlines eventually. You know, that, that's how a lot of airline people ended up. But it was a, a dream that it wasn't for someone from a housing commission in Green Valley. Mm. You know, we didn't aspire to those sort of jobs. They, they came from the elite schools and things. Uh, it was really difficult to do. I didn't have enough money. I've had commitments. Uh, it was a job that was just unattainable for me. So, Is it something that you look back on with a sense of regret or are you kind of at peace with the fact that it didn't work out how it did? I'm now at peace with it. I, I, it was a sense of regret for years yeah. for sure, but I'm now at peace with it because mm. I've done lots of other things mm. now with music and things and which I probably wouldn't have done if I was a, a flying instructor. And, and look, you speak to a flying instructor and they're bored with the job. I've got a mate who's an airline pilot of Qantas. Mm. He's a captain. He instructs other pilots. He's bored with his job. And it's often just the notion of, you know, the grass is always green like whatever we don't end up doing in our lives, I think we romanticise, even if perhaps we wouldn't have actually enjoyed it. We say, oh, I wish I did that or, you know. Exactly. It's that's just it, a, the irony of our brains. That's exactly right. And, and 
And I think that's uh, been a case for me my whole life. Is it FOMO? The yeah, fear, yeah. Fear of missing out. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always trying something just to experience it. That's what I yeah. do too. I often yeah. say to myself, am I going to regret not doing this when I'm older? If so, then I have to just do it to yes, say I've done it. Yes. <laughs> Even if it's not actually what you want to do, yeah. it's often just... And, and that's what got me into bands because I, I would go see a band before I was, mm. a, I was a musician. So no, I don't want to be here. I want to be up there. I want to do mm. what he's doing. And that's how I learned to play guitar. I went to see Led Zeppelin in 1972 and it just changed my life. I thought, I want to be on that stage and do what they're doing. Uh, so I went home and borrowed a guitar from my mate, learned to play and ended up in bands, but obviously not the same calibre as Led Zeppelin. But uh, <laughs> Very few people do. <laughs> no, but, but that was it. I, was, yeah. I, I, I didn't want to miss out on experiencing what they're experiencing. Is your sense of, I feel like it's kind of like a sense of adrenaline or is that what it is that is the through line between all these experiences, like firefighting, <laughs> being a pilot, playing music on a stage, like that's a very particular feeling, I think. Is yep. that something that you would say is true? Absolutely. Yeah, mm. I think I didn't know at the time and it's only in hindsight that I've looked back and thought, well, I've just been chasing these. I was never cut out to be an accountant. and, and yeah. not, not nothing against the accountants who are watching, but but it's just that wasn't mm. me. I had to, my father was in the army you know, and my mum was a nurse. It was just all this adrenaline things were around me my whole life and, and yep. uh, that's, I think, subconsciously I was attracted towards that mm. kind of thing for sure. So let's talk about you become a firefighter. Um, what was the training like at the time? Yeah, well, at the time, as I said earlier, I was 33 by this stage. Mm -hmm. I'd held off and held off and held off and by this stage thought, no, nah, look, I need to get a career that I can take with me for, you know, I can be in forever. Mm -hmm. So my mate who was talking me into it, he finally won. I joined in, went through the training program. Well, the hard part was for me at the time was the physical to get in because even though I was, I was fit, mm. it was much harder than it is now. It was really a tough day. In what the, did you have to do? Do you remember? Yeah, we, we arrived at the college, which and it used to be at Alexandria, mm -hmm. and it's still there, but I, they don't use it as a college anymore. Arrived in the morning and then first thing is like an obstacle course and, and they give you a life-size dummy that you, can, you can't lift up. It's just it's so heavy. And you have to drag it around an obstacle course mm. and over makeshift houses and, and then sprint back and connect hose and drag that hose over the same obstacle course and come back. And you're repeatedly doing that. And you had a certain time limit to make it. And I made it within five, 10 seconds. So I just made it. And as soon as you finish that, you're panting. Yep. So I was fit at the time, but I was puffing and puffing. They put a, a, a mask on you and you've got to climb the tower. And the tower is a five, six-story building and you can't get your breath. And then you finish that and then they put a an encapsulated suit which they just zip you mm. up and you crawl through a darkened tunnel and if you're not claustrophobic you will be when you do this so not only are you out of breath because you've just done all this physical stuff you're in an enclosed tunnel so mm. they're trying to find out if you're going to be claustrophobic then when you finish all that you climb a ladder three stories and you do what they call a leg lock they don't do this anymore but in the old days you the old days <laughs> In the olden days. <laughs> in you, 1923. Yeah, yeah. You'd climb the ladder and you'd, there's this intricate way of locking your feet yeah. into the ladder and then you could let go and lean back. So you had to line, climb up about three stories, lock your legs in, lean back, and if you didn't lean back far enough, you failed. Are you connected to a harness or anything? No, oh. no. Your legs are, are, are locked through the roof. Is there something that you would fall if you fell no, off? The no. So you're up three stories and, and you they show you how to do it. And wow. You, you put your leg through the rung and kind of lock it in mm -hmm, place with mm -hmm. the other leg. Then you let go and people would let go and just be yeah. like, and they'd fail because yep. you had to lean right back and it was terrifying. And so, and you've just done this obstacle course as well. And then you're lifting stuff up and ropes and it, and it went all day, this whole day of getting, and 
unlike today, obviously it was uh, not the digital age, so you found out that day if you're in or not. Wow. And we're all sitting around, you know, covered in bruises and sweat and, <laughs> and cuts. And, and then the guy called me into the, the office and said, oh, you got in. And that was as quick as that. So then, uh, and then are you literally on the job? No, then then you go to the college. Right. So that was the, the day of the physical. You already sat the exam, yes, yes, the written yes. exam, all this. So then we started at the college, and I think it was a month later I started at the college, and that was I loved the college. It was fifteen weeks mm-hmm. of, of hard training. You, you do your physical PT in the morning, and then you do uh, various drills and mm-hmm. driving and BA and hazmat and all that sort of thing. Went for fifteen weeks, and then at the end of that, you have a major exam, and then you. Five guys failed. I think my class had to reset, but we all got through. And then that you get posted to a fire station. Yeah. From there, so uh, they just read out your name and what station you're going to. There's no requests or anything like that. What you, station were you posted so to? I was sent to headquarters at the time, which is now called City of Sydney, but it's yeah. Castle Ray Street, Sydney. I've actually been in this area to Bondi. Wow. There's a Bondi fire station. Yeah, there is the just corner. down the road. I've actually spent time there as wow. well. I was saying to coming down here. I remember going there. What what were the parts of your training that you particularly enjoyed? Were there any areas that you thought, if I can get into that with my work, that's what I want to do? Yeah, I was always attracted to the rescue side of things and, right. and, and that's kind of what brought me undone eventually. But because I was from a tradie background and rescue, what happened at the time, to give you a bit of background, the police rescue looked after rescues within New South Wales under the State Rescue Act. And by rescues, we mean when people are trapped in a car or an industrial accident or falling off a cliff or that's yeah, what, yeah. anything where someone, person or animal needs rescuing, the police rescue had it. But then in, in 19, don't quote me, but it was early 90s, 91, 92, police rescue handed all that over to the fire brigade, except for one small section at Zetland in town. So the fire brigade, basically the, the rescue agency for all of New South Wales. So when that happened, I thought, right, that's it. That's great for me. And I was at headquarters at that time in Sydney and I was travelling in from, we were living at Ingleburn out southwest, an opportunity came up to go to Liverpool Fire Station, which was rescue, a designated rescue station. So what happened, you had, every suburb had maybe one rescue station. There might have 10 fire stations, but only one was a designated rescue station. And so Liverpool was one of those. So I got the opportunity to go there, put my transfer papers and got the job and loved it. You know, I thought, this is me, I'm tradie, I'm good with tools, I, mm. I love the engineering aspect of it all. And uh, for the first five, six years. It was fantastic. Was there additional training with the rescue side of things? Is that something that you kind of make it known that you want to get into that area and they're like, yep, you need to do your additional training yeah. or hours or? Yeah, you put your hand up to do rescue and if there's a vacancy and there was always vacancies because the fire brigade had just taken it over so we, they needed lots yep. of people to fill those spots. So I put my hand up to do rescue, got accepted and then the training begins. Yeah, it's a pretty intense training. It's like, you know, this tabletop scenarios and then you'll go out to They'll have fake car accidents that you've got yep. to get dummies out or they'll have uh, people over cliffs because you did cordage rope work yep. and abseiling and all that and stretches and how to put people in a stretch and raise them up. And then they had a place out at Holsworthy called the USAR Training Ground, which is Urban Search and Rescue. Mm-hmm. And that's all collapsed bricks and buildings and there'd be little tunnels and they'd hide bodies in there or they'd hide real people and crawl in there and you'd have to go and listen and find and work out a way to move rocks and bricks and get them out. So pretty intense training. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about PTSD later in the episode, but I'm interested to hear during this training phase in the first few years, being in rescue, was there any training around mental health? No, no. So it was a different era and I'm not blaming anyone. Mm. It was just 
it was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of uh, suck it up, sweetheart. You went to the pub and you just laughed it off. Actually, you would talk about it around the mess room table, and mm. but there was no positive therapy about it. It was just uh, quite often it was left up to you to deal with the best way you could. And there was no nothing was put in place, not in those early stages. It happened later on. What was kind of the dialogue around if someone was struggling or if someone had to quit their job because they weren't coping? Or did you ever hear of any stories of like, oh, that person, you know, they couldn't hack it so they had to quit? Or was that just kind of swept under the rug a bit? It it was swept under the rug because what would happen was a designated rescue station. Mm. Obviously, you still went to fires and things like that, but you had a designated rescue truck. So you might be put on the rescue truck Saturday night and then Sunday night you're on the standard fire truck. Mm -hmm. You'd find that you'd guys would be saying, look, I don't really want to go on the rescue track tonight. And, and so you'd think, well, all right, maybe he's not cut out for that yep. kind of work. There was never anything formal about it. It was mm. all informal. The station officer, the boss of the station, he might stop putting old Fred on there, you know, because he's you know, drinking too much mm. or something, you know, if they were wise enough to think like that. But most of the time, no, you just, you were put on that rescue truck. There's only two of you on there. And thinking back now, I don't know how anyone coped because... The two guys on that rescue truck, there's no, it doesn't carry water. So it's a, it's a truck full of rescue equipment. Yeah. And, you know, they call it the jaws of life, but shears and jaws. But there's no consideration given to that you actually are a driver as well. So I might be, I was at, say, Liverpool Fire Station on the rescue truck, or I got later at Macquarie Fields Fire Station, which is also rescue. I might have to get a call on a Saturday night to a car accident 15 kilometres away, and I've got to drive there in a big, 10-tonne fire truck full of rescue gear under siren. And then when I get there, I've got to cope with the, mm. with the extraction of the victims. So in hindsight, if they're doing it properly, you say, well, right, you rescue guys, you sit in the back and we'll just have a designated driver. Totally. But it, they didn't think like that. It was would have been cost-saving as well, for sure. So, uh, yeah, so there was no mental health treatment. There was no not even an awareness of it really that, that, that I can remember. I think probably it was a social or cultural thing that we were this nation of like, she'll be right. And, you know, that was just the times. But also, as you said, probably no one wanting to show weakness. You're meant to be these tough firefighters, mostly men, I imagine. Were there any women at the time? When I joined at headquarters, there was three women. Out of how many? Oh, 3,000. Wow. There was was 3,000 permanent firemen and there was three women. That I knew of. Is that because they they naturally couldn't pass the physical? They couldn't, or? No, well, both. They couldn't pass the physical, and the three that did were exceptional. And they and what happened? If I can digress a sure. bit, what happened was that we needed more women in there for lots of reasons, which you know you'd spend hours talking about. So they changed the physical standards at the intake, so women could get in. Right. Now that. And I say that with the utmost respect because we needed women because the fire brigade changed. It used to be the old days of the hardened ex-army guy or ex-navy guy mm-hmm. who joined up and he kicked doors in and ran to burning buildings. What happened over the years, it become more reactive, mm. more proactive than reactive. That was your, your reactive firefighter, there's a fire, let's go do something. What happened, some stage, probably late 90s, early 2000s, fire brigade got into education. They got into fire safety in buildings. So if you were, could get more women into the job, you could get more people into public education, you get more people in the factories, you get more people putting smoke detectors in. Mm. So you didn't need thousands of firemen kicking doors in to save people. Yeah. The whole way that they approach firefighting changed. And so now there's hundreds and hundreds of women in. And women are also fantastic firefighters because 
there's a kind of level-headedness to them <laughs> that, that gung-ho young guys don't have. They're more likely to do a, a dynamic risk assessment before you go running into right. the building and get killed. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a great thing. But they didn't have it back then. They had three women in the job. Wow. And I want to just go back to what you kind of said that there was a hint of maybe people coping through drinking because there was no other really support at the time. Do you recall that being a normal thing? You'd come back from a job and it would be to have a drink? Or? Yep, yep. That was it. My first experience with real live alcoholics was in the fire brigade. I, Did I, they know they were alcoholics? Probably not. Yeah. That they would come into work drunk. Right. Or, or you know, they might sneak some drinks at the station. All on days off, there were domestic violence issues. I saw all that in the early years of the fire brigade. And no fault of those guys. They didn't know how to, mm. they didn't know what to do, you know. So when eventually PTSD landed on me, I realised that I thought I was the only one that mm. had this. And these guys were the same. So they, I can think of one guy, I won't name him, but I think in particular he was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But he, I'm sure he was convinced that he's the only person who got scared He's the only person who felt ashamed or embarrassed or maybe not able to do this job. He thought he was the only one when everyone felt like that. But we didn't know. We didn't talk about it. Mm. I wouldn't say to a guy, listen, I'm a bit hesitant about crawling under that train. You know, you just had to do it. Yeah. And, and so we never spoke about that sort of stuff in the early days. You know. Can we talk a bit about your PTSD journey? Mm. Yep. So at what point <clears throat> did you start to realise that things weren't going so well for you? Was there a particular moment or was it kind of built up over time? What sort of behaviours did you start to realise, hang on, that that's not right? Yeah. I think the first, there was probably things that happening at home that, yep. that I didn't realise. My wife would probably be the person to talk to there. But I remember the first time I, I felt something at work and it was in 2002. 2005, no, 2005. Is this like 10 years on the job, 15? Yeah, I, I joined in 1990, so okay. I've been 15 years. Yep. So 2005, I'd been doing rescue for 10 years mm-hmm. by this stage. It was at a place called Glenfield and there was a little causeway and a little bridge, a little flat bridge, and it went. It joined Glenfield Township to the army camp, mm-hmm. Holsworthy Army Camp, and a car had gone over and he flipped on his side and he was kind of half in the water. And we got called to it and I'd been to lots of cars on their side and things like that. And I remember I crawled down off the bridge and the other rescue guy was busy up top and there was two other fireys there with us and then some retained firefighters who were part-time. So I was kind of the head rescue dude. Mm-hmm. I remember the guy. there was an ambo inside the, the car with the guy and I'm crawling inside with him and I'm trying to cut this B pillar. There's an A pillar which holds your windscreen and the next pillar yep. between your front and back windows called the B pillar. I'm trying to cut that and it wouldn't cut. Mm. I had these shears that were very powerful. Just nothing would move. And I turned around and I just panicked. Yep. And I just felt it. It was almost like it came up from my feet, overwhelmed me, and it's like everything stopped. And I felt this real disassociation, this out-of-body experience. And I thought it was lasting for minutes. It probably lasted for seconds, mm. but I had no idea. And I thought, there's no one else here who can do this. If I don't do this, this guy doesn't get out. And I felt the pressure of that. I was overwhelmed. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden I took a few deep breaths and it all, everything kind of went back into place. It all fell into place. And I was, what it is, it's that the hydraulic lines get air in them and right. they need to be purged. And I knew that, but I couldn't think about that at the time. I was just thinking about how terrible I felt. Mm. So anyway, eventually got it purge and, and it cut and the rescue went perfect and the guy got taken away to hospital and he was fine. 
I, when I got back to the stage, I thought, what was that? You know, what happened? And then it happened again, happened again, happened again, and more and more closer together. And, and it happened, then it would start happening at home and I'd go to Bunnings or something. It mm. would happen anywhere. And just this overwhelming sense of dread and fear mm. and panic. And I've been to, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I've been to so many sessions over the years that I could, if I can give you my take on, sure. on what PTSD is for me. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's different for every, everyone. How it was explained to me, because mine wasn't isn't one instance where someone sees someone get shot and they get suffer. Mine is over years and years and years. So if you're driving down the road, for instance, and you get a blowout mm-hmm. and your car starts to veer off the road and you're about to hit a tree, in that instance, all these ancient brain mechanisms kick in and they're for survival and it's adrenaline just fills your body. Blood runs through your extremities, leaves all the big parts of your body and goes to your legs and your mm-hmm, arms because, mm-hmm. and that's why you feel ill because all the stuff's going to places that it doesn't yep. normally go. Your pupils dilate, your hearing is intense and that's all because there's a lion chasing you and you, you need to get out of there and that's a defence mechanism. And so what happens is your baseline is here of where you're normal walking down the shops, you're feeling okay, and then bang, it goes up to there. So you go from naught to 100. Then you don't hit the tree. You know, you put your brakes on or you do hit it and you don't get hurt. Then it might be a day, a few hours, maybe a week, that'll come back down to baseline zero again mm. and you go on with your life. If that happens to you repeatedly, night after night, I might have three rescues in a night or might have three in a month, whatever. Yeah. But after doing that for 10 years, the brain goes, hang on, I'm not moving that baseline all the way down here again. I'm going to just move it to here because it's going to come back up anyway. So mine, even now, I know that my normal baseline is up here and it doesn't take me much to get to there. Whereas something that I would cope with that might be like a musician, like playing on stage. Yeah. And I think, well, I'm really nervous about that, but I can cope. Now I can't because I'm already up here. So that little bit, totally. bang, and I'm all, all of a sudden I'm back about to hit a tree in a car. So yeah. that's how it was explained to me and it's, it's spot on. So it's a cumulative thing over, over the years of doing it that caused my PTSD. But the initial episodes I'm aware of, I'm, I know they're happening. The other side of PTSD for me, and, and, and is for most people because I've spoke to psychologists about it, is all the side effects. Mm. And they're the ones that are tough. They're the, that's the drinking and anger. You know, I'm, I have a temper now that I've never had before. I'm short-tempered. I've controlled my drinking to some extent, but there was times that I was drinking till three, four in the morning because I didn't want to go to bed mm. because I'd have nightmares. So I'd sit up all night and drink and then be unconscious. So that would happen. That happened for years and years until I got good therapy and got out of that. So there's all, all the side effects that go with just having PTSD. Hi, everyone. A quick reminder that if you are loving this chat, I would be so grateful if you could take two minutes now to jump on whatever platform you're listening to this and leave a review or share the episode you're currently listening to on social media. I'd love to see where you're listening from. If you're going for a walk, if you're at the gym on the treadmill, if you're driving, obviously don't take a photo if you're driving, (laughs) but it is so incredible to see that we now have listeners from over 35 countries tuning in and the more that we grow, the bigger guests I can bring you. I am so, so grateful that you're here on this journey with me and I'm excited about the live chats that we have coming up with some absolutely inspiring guests. Thank you so much.
all those little signs, I suppose what you're talking about is kind of like a hypervigilance, which a lot of first responders have is like, you're totally, you're always on guard and you're mm. always super aware of your surroundings because yeah. you have to be. Well, all those things happening whilst you're working in rescue, is that becoming clear to you that there's anything wrong or it reached a point where you no longer were able to work? Like what did that sort of process look like? Yeah, I, I think I knew there was something wrong. Yeah, yeah right. I definitely knew for, for, for quite a few years and I tried to manage it at work. Another instance was I got put in one of these fully encapsulated suits, as I say, and to describe what that is, it, it's a firefighter wears normal BA, which is a mask and then an air cylinder on, on your back, but then they'll put you inside a suit and zip that suit up, right? And it's like These a big, are really big, heavy yeah, suits. Yeah, so yeah. They're, they're, they're lots of room in them because you actually pull your arm out yeah, and, right. and right inside them, like, a big, wow. space, like mm. a big space suit, but they're so claustrophobic under normal circumstances. So I had a panic attack or what I think is a panic attack inside one of these suits mm. and then I lied because I had to get out of it and you can't get out by yourself. Someone has to get you out right. of it. And now I said, oh, look, my air set was playing up. So I found that I was doing things like that. I was making excuses not to do my job. You know, it might be like, you know, I've got to put BA on, crawl through this. We had a, a building, a, light, a house of light. Mm-hmm. I fell through the stairs and had to go up to the top to search for kids who apparently were in there. Luckily they weren't, but I remember the same thing. I was, this panic, this came over me. And then I go, the next one I'll be fine. So that was happening more and more often. Mm. So I realised that, okay, I've got to do something. So I went to they have an employee assistance program, mm-hmm. which is a psychologist. Went to three sessions with the employee assistance program and nothing happened because due to privacy law, they can't, then ring up your station officer and say, listen, Alan's suffering from PTSD. Mm. I think it's kind of a useless tool. What they can do is recommend that you go see someone else. And that eventually happened because I went a few times. So I eventually went off to a psychiatrist and everything happened from there. Before we get into that, um, and we don't have to talk about it, but I know you do mention some instances in the book. You mentioned kind of having nightmares or being in Bunnings and having these flashbacks. Mm. Were there particular rescues that have stayed with you that have been more challenging to move on from than others? Mm. And if so, why do you think those ones stand out? Yeah. Is it just they were so traumatic? Or I think one of the ones was a train. I've been to three, four train fatals. Well, I've only been to four train incidents and they're all fatal. Yeah, Train wins every time. And uh 15-year-old boy, we found this out in hindsight. And, and I remember getting there to the station. It was just getting dark and and we there's a certain protocol you have to do. You have to lower the pantographs, which are the things that connect mm-hmm. the rail. You have to put someone up and down the tracks. You have to chock the wheels, make sure the keys out in the ignition. There's all this sort of stuff you have to do before you're allowed to crawl under a train. So we did all that. And the station master said, look, we think he's two carriages back. We didn't know if he's alive or deceased. And so me and two other firefighters, got between the platform and train with the overhang and mm-hmm. crawled up with our gear and we could just see off in the distance. And it's like a little dark tunnel and you couldn't see anything, but we got up, they got up and then it started to appear that it was mm-hmm. a 15-year-old young boy. We didn't know how old at the time. And it was a bit of a mess, as you can imagine. He was decapitated or partially decapitated and we had to get him into a, a body bag. But by this time, there's thousand people, mm-hmm. thousand people looking down off the station onto the platform. So I thought, how do we do this? So we had to, and that's the sort of pressure under like, how do we do this to provide dignity to the body, but we need to get them out and the family and we need to get him out and not let all these people see. And you've got a five carriage train full of people. How do you do that? And that was left, that sort of pressure is left up to that firefighter. And so I'm thinking, we went back out and we got a body bag and we had to get a couple. Sorry for the <laughs> detail. No, it's, uh, it's had to the get truth, and, and, yeah. And put him in that. And then we 
kind of hit him underneath the platform and then we could move the train out and go back yeah. and get the body and take him out. But we found out later that he was a kid at the local school. I think it was Minto School, I'm not sure. He was bullied. He'd been bullied his whole life and he figured that the best way out of this is suicide. And I remember at the time thinking, no, nah, no, nah, why would you try to kill yourself? And then I went down that path many years later. Mm. You know, so I thought, obviously not in a rational state of mind, but that 15-year-old, he that stayed with me forever. I still think about that one. And you you had kids, I think, yeah, at the time, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, and my daughter was 15 at that mm. time. My son was joining the fire brigade as well. He, wow. he, was, he was like 19 and he was joining the local retained and then he, he joined a permanent later on. Did so, you have any uh, worries about him joining? Yeah, I did. Uh, when he was a retained firefighter, which a retained is part-time, they they got a buzzer or now mm. it's your phone and they just get paid per call. So some of the smaller stations are retained. Yep. But, but they, they actually turn out to incidents, fires and rescues with mm. their local stations. So there was a few early on that my son Robbie turned out with me, we went to the same house fight. Mm, wow. Things like that. So, and I didn't like it, you know. I was so glad when he, he joined the permanent fire brigade, and I was glad because it's a fantastic career, don't get me wrong. But I said to him, don't join the rescue section. And he wouldn't anyway. He's not. That, he's a different kettle of fish. Mm. <laughs> so he branched out in other areas. But, uh, yeah, I was worried when he, he joined for sure. Speaking of something you said, like you were the only one to kind of manage that situation. I'm sure that was most of your career. You're the only one in charge. You're the only one calling the shots. What are you thinking in that moment? Are you thinking or are you just like you're what? in the moment making decisions or are you trying to kind of weigh up everything that's going on around you? What I found the most difficult, I think I alluded to it in the book, I don't ever did it justice, with firefighting, the traditional firefighting, we're talking a bushfire or a factory fire or a house fire, obviously when the bells go off in a fire station, you jump into the truck and away you go hurtling down the highway and adrenaline's just mm. going through your body. And that's great because you're going to go into a house fire and you're going to go into a factory or run through the bush with a, your hose. But when you get to a rescue, I likened it to sewing a button during an avalanche. You've still got all this adrenaline going, but the things that you're doing, like under the train, for instance, and I don't mean to be too graphic, but you're kind of unwrapping this kid as yeah. well as you can from the wheels and the undercarriage. Or you might be in a in a car and the person's still alive and you're trying to cut a part of it, the dashboard or mm -hmm. push it. You have spreaders that push it. So if you push it and then it moves somewhere else and, and they're hurt. So everything you do is like minute increments, yet all you want to do is hoe in and get the hell out of there. But you can't do that. You've got to so that is counterintuitive. You just want to start smashing and swinging mm. things because that's how you feel, but you've got to be delicate and use fine tools and manoeuvre bits of equipment around and, and it's a really difficult thing to manage and I think that eventually gets rescue firefighters in the long run. Totally. And it calls into question like the fact that maybe humans aren't meant to be doing these jobs. Like we're just not meant to see what you've seen and be able to cope with that. It's mm. a totally, to me, it feels totally normal that PTSD exists because we're not meant to comprehend the mm. level of tragedy that you see. And as you said with PTSD, your level of cope, your coping strategies are at a certain level. Some people might be lower than that. Some people yes. might be higher than that, but that's an individual thing as well. I had a, a good talk with a, I've only had one or two psychiatrists, but I've had about eight or nine psychologists mm. that I've been to, depending on where I lived at the time and who was available. And, and I had a really, my last psychologist who I still see, mm. she's at the Central Coast. I said to her once, similar to what you're talking about, I said, I've been to rescues with guys who have done some horrible things, had to do some 
things that people don't even speak about, pick stuff up off the road and things and put them in yeah. bags and, and then gone back to the fire station and I've been staring at the ceiling and they fall asleep. And I said, surely that they're not immune to it. I said, no, they're not. I says, but what happens is it'll, like this famous musician that we all know, if you push it down, it'll come out sideways. Yeah. Okay, that's a line in a song, and and it's a psychiatric jargon. These guys that can fall asleep and not even think, it'll come out somewhere else. Yeah, it'll be either they they're going home bashing their partners, mm. or they're drinking when you don't see it, or they they're short tempered, or it'll come out somewhere else. You know, and they're not sleeping at home, so they're sleeping. Yeah. So she said, no one is immune from it. No one is immune. It, surely there's different levels, but it'll get everyone eventually. Yeah. So let's talk about that moment or perhaps moments. At what point was doing this job no longer an option for you? Was that a choice that you made or was that something that wasn't a choice that you were kind of, I think you were retired, but how did that all play out? Well, it didn't happen straight away because I I got out of rescue. I said, well, maybe I can just go somewhere within the fire. And that, there was options. And a job came up in a place called the Structural Fire Safety Unit, which was at, in Greenacre. I was at uh, Macquarie Fields at the time. And so I thought, well, that'll get me out of the fire truck. It'll get me out of the station. It gets me into a semi-office job. Did you tell anyone that, that the reason why no, you wanted to get no, out? No, okay. no, no one knew. Because remember, this is sorry, this is 2005. I wasn't technically diagnosed till 2009. Wow. Even though I knew yeah. all that stuff I'm talking about happened already, no one really knew. So I didn't even tell my closest mm-hmm, friends. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. applied for a job at Greenacre, got the job thinking that, all right, that'll get me away from the fire station. Mm. But it didn't because what, what happens then is that it's still the same uniform. The office is attached to a fire station next door so you can still hear the bells going off. Yeah. People are coming in now in trucks and, and it also gave me more time to dwell on mm. things that I've seen and done. And so it didn't help at all. So I stuck that out for another, I was there for six years. I stuck wow. it out. But the last two years I was on reduced duties because by then I'd fessed up. I'd been to the brigade, doctors and EPA and all that sort of stuff. And so they put me on reduced duties and it was ever reduced. It was like, used to be, went from, you know, 10 hour days to six hour days and four hour days and two hour days and two hour days twice a week, you know. And that, so eventually I just said, look, I went to the doctor and, and the psychiatrist said, yep, you can't do it, you're out. So I medically retired in 2014. How, how did that feel at the time? Did you feel um, <coughs> relief? Did you feel annoyed, upset? What was the overarching feeling of having to retire? I f- my honest feeling was that I was a failure. I, I hadn't. Right. I felt like, um, what are you softy? Mm. How did you? Why can you not stay in? You know, you, you, you could have stayed in the office the rest of your life. You know, and scooped up a good wage and a good retirement, and, but, I, but I couldn't. I just couldn't physically, do, uh, mentally do it. So I felt guilt and I felt shame and I felt like a you know, softy. Mm. I felt like, you know, you, you weak ass. You couldn't even, couldn't even cope with an office job. So, yeah, I didn't feel good about it at all. So the fire brigade, they, they give you a send-off and I requested not to have it. I couldn't, couldn't cope with it. Mm. I got a, had a few mates and my son came. We went to a little pub in town and had a few beers and I said goodbye. That was it. I couldn't handle the standing up in front of all, you know, 200, 300 fireys and making speeches and when inside I felt ashamed that I couldn't do the job. And that's how I'll, I'll probably still carry that with me. That I was going to say, is that still how you feel? I think so. I, I'm, I'm trying to deal with it. It's been a long time now. Mm. I retired in 2014, so it's been nine years. But even though I still know that I suffer the the long-term effects of PTSD, like the 
still getting anxious and and certain this triggers here and there that I get. But that guilt of leaving early, mm-hmm. I think I don't know if I'll ever get rid of that. I don't know. Yeah, and, and I've tried doing other jobs and things, but they're all been kind of mundane. Boring I mean, jobs. compared to what you were doing, I don't think anything would ever be on that level of <clears throat> stress or no. responsibility or yeah. any of that. And, and a big thing with me, Georgia, too, was that I was never one for. And this will sound really odd, but I was never one to be get nervous or, or not nervous is the wrong word to be upset about the blood and guts, the gore. That wasn't brought me undone. What brought me undone was the anticipation, the dread. Right. So I'd I'd go to a fire station and it might be a night shift and the bells would go off and I'd just be hit with dread and, and, and fear of what I'm about to see. The fear was that what if I can't get them out? What if the person's trapped in a car and I'm the only one who can do this? There's the, I've got an offside here, but he's inexperienced. Whatever. What if I can't get them out and they die in the car? That's my, you know, mm-hmm, on me. Mm-hmm. What if, you know, they're under a train and, and they're still alive and, and I can't get, you know, all this stuff. It was that that undid me. If it was just plain old, it was gory, I could mm-hmm. cope with it. Even now I can cope with gore. I can't cope with the anticipation of what's about to ha- what may happen. And so I make things worse than they really yeah. are, you know. After you retire, were there any conversations with ex-firefighters or people still on the job about your experience, about your mental health, about PTSD, or was that kind of something you then went on that journey on your own? I, the journey was on my own apart from psychiatrists and psychologists right. and my wife. But when I did start to talk to firefighters, was after I released the book. Yeah, because okay. every firing that I worked with bought the book or, mm. or, or the, being tight asses, they didn't buy it and just <laughs> lend it to each other. I've gone on to a film about that. Don't give it to him, let, let him buy it. No. <laughs> but uh, when they read the book, they rang me up and said, look, I was same with me. Wow. And, and, I, and that was such a good feeling for me that, and I'm not talking hundreds, but there was quite a number, you know, a dozen, totally. a dozen people might have rang me. Now, if a dozen rang me up and said that that happened to me, then there's probably a hundred that, are not game to ring up. A hundred percent. And and so I think in some weird way, even though writing a book was cathartic for me, mm. I think it's helped a lot of other people think, well, even though they might not, a few people said I can't read it and I get that. But the ones that did and got back to me, I was so grateful for that. I thought, wow, well, there you go. We all felt the same. You and know. it's different now. Like I'm sure you you know how different the system is now, but there's training around mental health, there's support, there's resources for young first responders, <clears throat> paramedics, cops, all of it. They actually have a pathway to, I have a friend who studied, was a paramedic for one year and just simply could not handle it. Like so anxious, mm. so depressed. And she's now on like the educating side of things yes. at unis, yeah. but she just said there was so much support. No one gave her a hard time. There was no shame. It was yeah. kind of just like, good on you for saying early Early on, this is actually not for me. Yeah. So it's such a different world now. It is. Even at the college, I believe the 5 college there, they have psych mm. training and things like that, which we, no one had in those days. And, and it's a great thing because it, it is such a wonderful job. But as I say, the 5 gates now, obviously they still go to fires and rescues mm. and all that, but there's so much of it now is in prevention, fire prevention. And one smoke detector can save so many lives compared to a fiery rushing in and rescuing people. You know, there's so much, and building safety and that kind of thing, public education, that's where they're headed and, and it's a good thing. A massive part of your story, which I also just want to quickly touch on if we can, is 
you know, before writing the book, you had this horrible insurance experience. Do you mind talking about that if you can? Yeah, I'll try and give you the, the condensed version because it went on, <laughs> went on for years. It went on for years. Because what happens is, is that I had retired. There was no dispute that I, I had PTSD. No one disputed that. The fire brigade didn't dispute it. Fire brigade medical staff didn't dispute it. The insurance company that was paying the bills, they didn't dispute it. It was all rubber stamped. The union, all rubber stamped. Yes, PTSD, you can medically retire. And that was fine. So for two years, you're on a certain percentage of your wage, enough to, enough to live on. But then I got worse over that two years because obviously they're trying to rehabilitate and get you back to some kind Is of Is that work. what you thought at the time? You were like, I'm going to get better from this and I'm yeah, going to get back to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So the insurance company, and, and this is what they meant to do and it's great, they will provide services for you. They've paid for psychologists, psychiatrists to rehabilitate you to get you back to work. And that's what, and even to this day, I was thinking, oh, what could I do? That'd be good. I, I, another avenue of work, I'll get, that would pay for training. It was, mm. I have no complaints about anything like that. But then about, Two years to two and a half years after I'd retired, I was getting worse. Temper again, not sleeping, getting triggers from places that I'd walk into a Bunnings and, and I'd smell something and, and the rubber gloves that you put on for rescue, that, I, the smell of that, and I'd have a panic attack. I'd get triggers in shopping centres. And a lot of the triggers that happen, you aren't aware of what they are. You have no idea. It could be a sight, a smell, a noise. have no idea. It's just... Your brain can't differentiate between reality and not. So it just says, hang on, you're about to, you know, get eaten by a lion. Let's yep. kick in, even though there's no lion there. So uh, that was happening more and more often. So I had to then, my psychiatrist, who I had for a few years, he wrote to the, the insurance company and said, look, Alan's probably not going to go back to work. Good chance he, you know, there's not much he can do in the way of work that, so from then on, everything changed. They, they realised that you're not going to go back to work. They're probably going to have to pay me some sort of money for the rest of my life because that's part yes, of the, yeah. the whole deal of insurance and, and the fire brigade. Fire brigade pays a lot of money to, yes. to insurance companies mm-hmm. for this to happen. And that's when things changed. So I, I didn't know things were changing until I had a solicitor through the union. He rang me up, said, listen, you've been under surveillance. And I said, what? What for? Not paparazzi. You know, I'm not that good at music. How did he know you were under surveillance? They sent all a whole dossier to the well, the solicitor company that mm-hmm. looked after all these cases. So they sent it to me, and it was. I remember some of the incidents, and it was like I was at the local chemist getting my medication. I went to Bunnings to get some bubble wrap for Kim. One particular day, and I distinctly remember it. We have an Airbnb kind of thing. Here. Ben Brett across the road, yep. and there was a guy pulled out on my driveway, and he's looking at the the building across the road with his phone. So I went out to get the other bin, and I'm looking yep. at, him, at him, thinking, "Oh, he's taking photos." So when I got the photo sent to me, he was actually photoing me. He had it in reverse and was following wow. me down the driveway. But not only was it photographic surveillance, they'd follow me, follow me everywhere. I, I didn't know this until later. They had uh, three thousand extracts from digital media from Facebook, from whenever they used to have MySpace or something. So someone's fully surveilling every move. Yeah, and that, but they, they did it historically as well. They went back for 10, 15 years. So they gave all that to the insurance company. The insurance company hired these people. They give them to them. And then what that's meant to do is that because I couldn't go back to work, it's a bit of a convoluted story, so I'm sorry. But no, no, because, it's, it's worth telling. Because I couldn't go back to work, that opens up an avenue 
to sue the fire brigade. But I had no intention of suing. I just wanted to get better. Mm. Or, But the insurance company doesn't know that. So when I say sue the fire brigade, you're technically suing the insurance company. And there's also a thing called a pain and suffering. There's a small payment of pain and suffering if you get a certain percentage of impairment. And that percentage is 15%. So if, you, if a PTSD sufferer or a psychological injury, if they're impaired by more than 15%, then by law, in, the insurance company pays them a certain And it's not a lot. It's 50000 45000 mm. or something Which like that. Which is like, what, one year's wage, yeah, you, you, if that. Half a year's yeah. wage, yeah. But it's a token thing. But once you get that, then the, that opens the door for you to sue. And my solicitor said, we're not suing. You can't sue for PTSD. You know, not these days. They've got stuff in place. Mm-hmm. And when they have stuff in place and you still get PTSD, then you have the avenue to sue. When I got PTSD pre-2005, that didn't have things in place. So you can't sue. That was a, the black and white of it. So what happened was that the insurance company then gets real hardball. They start playing hardball. And the idea is to get you off their books. So I get sent to a doctor, the fire brigade, and that doctor examines me and assesses me and I've got a percentage of 20% impairment, right? Happy days. I've made the 15% mm-hmm. cut and I can get my little 40 grand or whatever it is. The insurance company goes, no, we're sending you to our doctor. So I went to our doctor who lives just around the corner and here. You've got to do it again. I had a bit of a flashback when it came <laughs> oh, around. No. He, lives, he lives the next wow. two streets up. So he gives me 11%. And this guy's oh. nickname is Dr. 11%. Right. He gives everyone 11%. Then that goes to and fro for about two years, different doctors. Then eventually arbitration. They, they say, all right, we've had enough of this. We're going to an independent. And so I went to the independent up in Newcastle and he gave me 22% and that's it. End of, you, you get your payout. They have one month to protest. So on day 28, they protested insurance company protest. I was in Queensland visiting my family at the time and I was devastated. I thought, no. And then it took yeah. another, took months again of toing and froing after that. What was the point of the surveillance? What were they trying to do that, with that? Oh, it's all two reasons. It's from what I've been told. It's about when they come to, if I ever got to the case where I was going to sue them, it would have things like, oh, look, here's Alan on his back veranda having a beer. Sure, yes. To showcase that you are fine. To, to showcase that I'm fine. Yep, and and there's nothing wrong. Well, he, he he can drive his car. You said here he can't drive more than five kilometres in some whatever it was. I forget what it was, but I was at the local chemist getting my medication, and they film. You know, they just horrendous it, things like that, and they just dispute everything. My psychiatrist was in Sydney. My psychologist, you're entitled to claim mileage if you drive your own car. They dispute that. It just went on for years and years of. And it's just wearing you down, wearing you down. Yes, and it worked. Yeah. It worked because in the final result was I rang my solicitor and said, I want I want out. I want away from this. So I got paid a menial, you know, a small amount of money to get rid of them. That's what it was. I said, I don't want to deal with them anymore. I could have hung out until retirement, until mm. I died of old age and made them keep paying. But they won. I just needed to get rid of them because it was so depressing. And, At this point, I think you mentioned in your book, like you actually were suicidal as I did, well. Yeah. And, and that was what happened. So I ended up getting uh, put away. I got locked up in a psych ward in Sydney for, for three weeks, three and a half weeks. That was an eye opener. And What uh, do you remember from that? Yeah. It, it was, what struck me was how normal a lot of people were. There, there was two women there who suffered endometriosis mm-hmm. and they were 
addicted to uh, oxycodone. They were were just, one was a librarian, one was just a mum. They were in there with me and a couple of other emergency service workers, a couple of Vietnam vets. This hobo guy who'd lived on the streets his whole life, he was an alcoholic. We were just all mixed in together. And as much as it was a blur because I was coming off certain medication and going on other medication, I was getting off drink because I was drinking so much. I'd been suicidal before then because that's when I made plans to end my life and I got so drunk I just couldn't do it. And that's when my wife Kim said, all right. Did she know that you had those plans or did you not, tell anyone? I told her later. No, I told right. her afterwards. Well, she found out afterwards. But I ended up in the psych ward. And, and when I say lock up, they lock you up. It's, it's, not, it's like one over the cuckoo's nest. It was you can't get in and out and there's people have to ring you in and let you out and all the rest of it. And uh, so it was three, about three weeks. And uh, when I got out, I was on different medication. They'd wean me off some, wean me off other. I hadn't had a drink in three weeks, so that was all quite good. And then it went on from there kind of a little bit better, I would say. But uh, the insurance company by this stage had made up their mind that they were really going to hit me hard. And that's when, you know, even then more surveillance happened. I got the solicitor rang me up and said, look, I've got another wad of stuff here, photos here, but I'm not going to send them to you. No way. Because how do you even go I, about your day knowing you're being watched? No, I did. I said, look, I don't want to know. I said, don't even tell me about it. I don't want to know. And so that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I said, look, just can you contact them? I'm out. I'm not going to deal with them anymore. I don't want to go through this. I don't care. And so what happened was that they paid me what I would have got. They paid me like 50% of my wages that I would have Mm. got for the next couple of years. So I got, you know, not a, I got enough to see me out for two or three years and then, then I had to find a job. Basically. And you have to find work when you're yeah. mentally, yeah. as you said, not really in the state to deal with any stress. And, and for so, someone who has anxiety, then you probably even more anxious knowing you're yeah. being watched. Well, the, and the, the job I ended up was uh, a local public school as a COVID cleaner with a rag and a spray bottle. And that was all I could handle, you know, mm. so it was... But, you know, I'm in a better place now than I was 10 years ago, obviously. You know, so. I was going to ask you, where do you see your mental health at now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of everything now. I'm, I'm actually, as we speak, I'm going back on medication. I've mm-hmm. been off medication for quite a while. I went to the doctor yesterday. I start back on medication. I didn't take any last night because I knew I was coming here today because it's pretty heavy-duty stuff mm-hmm. when you first get on it. So I'm back on a few different drugs because I haven't been that well since, you know, losing jobs and things starting back on the medication tomorrow and uh, I'm going back to see my the psychologist at the Central Coast, one that I really connect Trust, with. Trust, yeah. Connect with. Yeah, because psychologists are funny. You can, I've been to some, I've had one session, but not, mm. not for me. And they've said it. They've said, look, we might not be the right fit for you. So you've got to find the right one. That's totally. my advice to anyone. If, you, if you're a fiery or emergency services person and you go to get psychological treatment and it doesn't work, keep looking. Because there'll be someone out there that's the right fit for you. I was going to say, what are the sort of things that have worked for you? I suppose even just the small things, if anyone's listening and they're in one of these jobs or perhaps they're just struggling with their mental health, Mm. are there any things that come to mind that seem to work for you? Yeah, the absolute number one is what I'm doing now, talk. Mm -hmm. Talk, get it out. Because as I said earlier, you push it down, comes out sideways. So I wrote the book and that was the most, I didn't plan on writing a book, it just kind of happened. But I started to write about fire brigade stuff and I thought, well, I may as well keep going and write about my life. 
And, uh, so it's a great book, by the way. Everyone should get you. a copy of it. I'll put the details in the show notes. But yeah, it's it's super honest and vulnerable and incredibly inspiring, even though it, the content is dark at times. Thank it's you. amazing. Yeah, I hope there's some funny bits in it as yeah, well. Yeah, of so. course. But yeah, so writing the book was the first step and also things like this. I've done a couple of these now and uh, I'll walk out of here feeling so much better than when I walked in. I'm glad. And, and also I say to anyone else in emergency services or anyone suffering PTSD Talk about it, get help. There's lots of help out there. I'm not saying go down the medication path, but if you have to mm-hmm. get the right medication, and that can be difficult sometimes. But the number one, talk, because there's lots of numbers in you know, Black Dog Institute and mm. Lifeline, all that stuff you can ring. Do it. Don't be embarrassed by it. You know, seriously, uh, I was embarrassed 20 years ago, but now I'm not. I've talked, no. to, talked to anyone about it. That's awesome. Um, I want to know if you could kind of pull up a chair and have a conversation with young Alan, maybe perhaps before he got into this career, is there anything that you would say or anything that you'd want to say to him? I think with me, I got caught up in the the, the gung-ho, the, the macho, adrenaline junkie side of it. I would slow down a bit, have a look, say, all right, you want to go on fire about it, it's fine, it's a great career. Do you want to go into rescue? Do you know what it entails? I'd, I'd ask more questions. You can do that now mm. because because they will give you some sort of psych test to to get into rescue. I, I've all and I've said this to my psychologist. I think there should be a with the rescue and the fire brigade. It's still the same. You sign up for three years mm. rescue, and then at the end of that three years, you do a quick practical test and you sign up for another three years. Wouldn't it be great if there was a psychological assessment at the end of that three years? Totally. And then you can be honest and say, "Look, I don't think I see how you're coping." Yeah. So look. Maybe give you six months off. Go just jump on a general duties truck for six months and come back to it. They still don't do that. You end of three years, you sign up again, you're off you go again. That's something they need to look at. Would you ever get into educating young fireys or speaking about mental health or sort of corporate speaking, I suppose, for anyone who works in the office side of things? Is that something that would yes. interest you? Now, I couldn't have done that a few years ago yeah. because I didn't want want to go down that path, but I could do that now, yeah. I have spoken to some young fireys and Liam, yeah. you know, I've spoken to him, he's about to join the job or trying to get in. I've spoken to him about it. and my I son, imagine that would be rewarding. Yeah, yeah. My son is obviously younger than me and a fire. We speak quite a bit about that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, I have spoken to a few people along those lines. And uh, yeah, I'd like to do a lot more mm. of it. And it's probably something I can do into my old age. Totally. You know, where it's uh, it not only helps me, it helps someone else. You have so much wisdom to share too around the experiences and kind of how to navigate it. Um, we do have a closing tradition on this podcast. Every guest is asked the same question. You can answer in as many or as little words as you like. But the question is, Al, what is the meaning of life? I think the meaning of life for me, well, the meaning of life is why are we here? That's the big question, isn't it? I would say for me to leave a better footprint than when I first landed here. So leave it a better place. I know it sounds, but I can only put it down to a rescue, okay? The whole meaning of of a rescue is to make sure that person leaves that incident in the same or better condition than when you got there. That's life. You've got to leave this planet and leave enough, influence it enough that it was better than when you arrived. And I think if you can do that, we're all... Millions of people, billions of people all doing that. It's going to help. It's going to make the world a better place. Yeah, you know, sounds really 
hippie. No, that's why we're here. (laughs) Thank you. On that note, I think we'll wrap up, but I just want to say and reassure you by having these conversations and you being open, you are doing just that. You are leaving it a better place. And when you found it, you're allowing people to be vulnerable and share perhaps their mental health struggles in a way that there's no shame, there's no judgment. And hopefully this episode, I know it will, will help a lot of people. So thanks for making time and thanks for being here. Thanks, Georgia. I enjoyed it. I'm glad. In a weird way, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you. No worries. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats.